0: He said, "Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste
1: your time thinking so about you the future?" Funky, interesting dude with a very sexy accent, I have to say. I just wanted to let you know um, that we've got a new sponsor for the show, Sure Design T-shirts. Guy contacted me a little while ago and sent me some samples that uh, Casilda and I have been sporting for the last week or two, and i got to say, they are really nice T-shirts. I'm not a salesman by nature. I'm really shitty at that sort of thing. So um, I hope you believe me when I say uh, I would not take a sponsor for this podcast, uh, which is a labor of love, if I didn't really like the product. Uh, I'm looking at his website right now. It's uh, suredesignt-shirts.com and you'll see if he doesn't update it or change it uh you see a sort of a silver mannequin who's wearing a female mannequin who's wearing uh like a tight fitting cream colored shirt that's got a beautiful design of a tree and then the roots of the tree underneath i love this design so i remember someone explained to me once a long time ago that the root system of a tree replicates what you see above ground so if you're worried about cutting the roots, you you want to move outside of the furthest branch because that's where the furthest extent of the root will be underground. There just seemed to be some very beautiful symmetry to that image. It reminded me of when I was working in Manhattan in a construction site. One of the the sort of old-time Italian laborers explained to me that when you look at manhattan island from new jersey let's say and you see the skyline right and you see how the the buildings go up at midtown really high buildings and then they go down you know through the village and and soho and all that and then the buildings go back up again in the wall street area downtown i always thought that that was just an economic thing that that uh for some reason there was a confluence of of money that made these buildings you made it uh, economic sense for people to Put up much higher buildings in Midtown and and down in the the financial district. But what this guy explained to me was that the bedrock underneath Manhattan Island comes up toward the surface at Midtown and then goes way back down deep again under lots of dirt and then comes back up toward the surface again uh, in the financial district so that you could drill into the bedrock and anchor these very tall buildings. So in fact, what you see when you look at the skyline of Manhattan is an echo, if you will, of the geology underground. Very cool. So I love this sort of subterranean expression of something that you see on the surface, which is all a very tangential way of saying that T-shirts T-shirts.com has some pretty cool stuff. We're going to be doing some Tangentially Speaking t-shirts with them and some Sex at Dawn shirts and some other stuff that we've got in the works. Um, So within the next uh, couple of months, we should have those. And I'll tell you about that. Anyway, uh, you can check out the podcast at feralaudio.com. Check out some of the other podcasts that they've got, uh, including the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Duncan's the guy who got me into this mess in the first place. And in fact, I think, uh, I think he's also sponsored by Sure Design T-shirts. I think that that was the connection. That's how they, we got in touch with them. Uh, the other thing uh, I've been told to remind you listeners about is, uh, if you get a chance, if you've got an iTunes account, uh, drop by the tangentially speaking uh, page, even if you don't download through iTunes and you can leave uh, ratings and comments and that, uh, that makes our algorithm happy, which apparently does something uh, wonderful for everybody. I'm not quite sure what it is, but appreciate it. All right. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation with Daniele Bolelli, who I first heard about from my friend Pete McCormick, a documentary filmmaker um, who's in the, in the archives. I did a podcast with him earlier. Um, Pete and, and Pete interviewed Daniele uh, for his film about Bruce Lee, I believe, because Daniele is uh is a martial arts expert as well as a badass historian. Alright, hope you enjoy the, so baby,
0: what's the big deal. If you wanna be free, say what you want to feel
1: welcome to another edition of tangentially speaking that was carcy blanton singing smoke alarm as always at the beginning and the end of the show beautiful song you can check her out at carcyblanton.com that's c-a-r-s-i-e blanton the way it sounds b-l-a-n-t-o-n.com she makes her music available for donation uh Amazingly, you just sort of put some money in the tip jar and take what you want, and she trusts you to be fair about it. She's a very interesting person, and uh, if you want to check her out a little more, there's um, an entire episode of Tangentially Speaking where she and I hang out in Brooklyn, listening to the jets landing, flying over the apartment in uh, Park Slope, and she even plays a couple of songs live. It's a really nice. It's nice, yeah. Her father, you know, funny story about Carsey, I. I got an email from her out of the blue as I do since Sex and Dawn came out I get emails from strangers all the time and uh so she sent me an email just saying hey I'm a I'm a musician I'm a young woman I'm in an open relationship a long-term relationship and um I just kind of feel like for the 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 campaign for sexual openness to continue people like me have to come out and and just declare ourselves and so i did i wrote a blog about my sexuality and you know i'm a woman who loves sex and i'm not ashamed to admit it so i thought i'd say it publicly i thought you'd like to read the blog so she sent it to me and i read it and it was really well written and thoughtful and interesting so i linked to it on twitter and facebook and all that and um Yeah. And then somebody and then and then we started talking about the podcast that Mm -hmm. I was planning at that point. I said, I'd love to interview you. And she said, uh, you know, if you want some music, well, so I listened to some of her music. And there's this song that's Mm -hmm. so beautiful. Uh, If you haven't listened to the words, it's really worth checking out. It begins. um, Hey, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you're going to feel. Say what you're going to say because you're going to die one day. Like and watch I, for I, me yeah, exactly I mean, what what wiser philosophy yep. of life is there, so uh anyway, long story short she i I posted this thing that hey, I think I 'm going to use one of her songs for the podcast and somebody else wrote in and said, oh, she's great. Yeah. And her father, you should check out her father. He wrote a book called Radical Honesty, Hmm. which is. (laughs) And anyway, I knew of her father because he was profiled on This American Life, this amazing 15 minute episode when they had a TV show for a couple Mm -hmm. of years. um, And uh, they profile this guy. He was running for Congress against Eric Cantor, who's number two in Congress now, the only Jewish Republican in Congress. (laughs) Turncoat, traitor to his race, um, but anyway, he um, he ran against Eric Cantor in Virginia, got twenty-five percent of the vote with no party affiliation. Right. The Democrats refused to uh, support him because he, there's nudity in his workshops. These radical honesty workshops, people get naked and talk about their insecurities about their bodies and so on. And that's bad, uh, yeah, and that right. freaked out the yeah. Democrats. And uh, yeah, but he got 25% of the vote. And anyway, the profile's great. You can see it on YouTube. It's um, His name's Brad Blanton. He's a politician who doesn't lie about anything. And it is just so charming and wonderful. So, anyway, it closed this uh, circle to get Carci involved with this. I'm here today with uh, pronunciation Daniele. Daniele, yeah, you pronounce Bolelli. it very well. Yeah, perfect. And then if you say it with more Italian added, Daniele Bolelli. That's right. That's yeah. the Italian way it. just sounds like Spanish with attitude yeah, to me. Totally.
2: Yeah, totally. Uh, in fact, Spanish is a piece of cake. It's like to me, I understand it as uh, if people speak slow, I get Spanish, no right. problem, because right. it's the same thing. All I do is I basically Add S's to whatever you know, <laughs> they put an S at the end of every Italian word, and that's Spanish, basically. Really? Yeah,
1: so, yeah, a little rhythm, a little more music uh, to uh, it. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Italian is is one of the world's most beautiful languages, I think. I, I, I really like growing up speaking it.
2: It's hard to tell because you know, for me, is uh, you know, you can always hear it in somebody else's language,
1: you can right. hear the beauty in your own. It's what you grow up speaking. So, depends on the know. language, though, huh? I mean, you don't hear a lot of beauty in American English, nyah, 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 yeah All through the nose. Or German. I I don't want to piss off anyone. No, no, I mean, I agree. There are some languages that are just nasty, but... um, Catalan? Have you heard Catalan? No, I'm missing out on Catalan. I lived in Catalonia for 20 years, and I still officially live there. And it's not a beautiful language. No, no. Spanish? Yeah, Spanish is okay. But Italian is beautiful. French? If a woman's speaking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. if a man's speaking, eh, eh, it doesn't work for me. No. Not so not. do you think with your Italian accent, has that given you a significant uh, advantage with women over the years? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, Daniele is nodding in the affirmative. Yeah, it's <laughs> tricky.
2: I mean, I never, you know, growing up in Italy, everyone else is Italian, so right, big deal, right? right. right. And uh, moving to the US <laughs> is when this finally dawned on me that yeah, that did provide
1: quite a bit of an advantage. And, and you're thinking, why didn't I move here no, earlier? How like old were you when you came? 18. Like, oh, well, that's a good age. Yeah, totally. you're, you're just about ready yeah, to yeah, take advantage yeah. of it
2: yeah and uh, it was funny because uh you know how it is it's like somebody speak uh laotian or something and people will respond with learn how to speak english you damn fob right you speak italian and it's like you butcher the english language horrendously <laughs> but it's like oh, oh tell me more and they're you know <laughs> battling high lashes and pe- women looking at you with dreamy eyes and oh, Really. Like, I'm very much in favor of all that. Nice, nice. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me, but who cares? I'm not going to argue with
1: that. Yeah, yeah. I was in uh, Formentera, you know, the little island near near Barcelona. Uh, I was there once in August. And the entire, it's Spain, it's Mm -hmm. officially Spain, but the entire island was just overrun with Italians. It was amazing. And I I asked one of the Italian guys, like, why? Why do you all come here? He said, well, the women come. And I was like, okay, but, you know, you've got Italian women right. in Italy. Why would you go to... He said, no, but in Italy, right. they're with their families, yeah. their brother, their mother, everybody's around, and they have to be good girls. But in Formentera... Woo, A different story, yeah. right. Italy is also interesting in summer because there
2: are all the northern European tourists coming yeah. in, yeah. and there's the classic thing that, you know, they are married to their whatever guy from out there, yeah. but then uh, summer they go for the hot italian fling for two weeks a month and so there's the hunting of german tourists swedish tourists yeah. and stuff who come and they usually have already started that's pretty funny where when they go back home if they spend a couple of months in italy then they feel really unappreciated because italian staring is so insanely obvious that everybody's just like you know having their eyes glued to you in yeah. some weird to me is like way over the top and borderline offensive way <laughs> but i guess when people are just giving them glances they feel like nobody likes me anymore nobody's checking me out right and
1: well i uh, i moved to barcelona i mean i moved to san francisco in 92 <laughs> with <laughs> my um spanish girlfriend at the time she's actually officially andorran yeah, you don't meet a lot of them. Right, right, and Doran right. passport, yep. but she grew up mainly in Barcelona. And um, I remember one day I came home from work, maybe a month after we'd been there or something, and she was crying. And I said, "What's wrong?" And I thought she missed her mother, you right. know, her friends or whatever. And, Finally, I got it out of her, and what she was upset about was she felt ugly. And this is a gorgeous woman, right. gorgeous woman. But she felt ugly because nobody was staring at her. <laughs> <I know. laughs> She's like, I walk down the street and
2: nobody even notices. <laughs> they are not even whistling and making cat calls and chasing me for three blocks. What's wrong?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of it also, we kind of live near the Castro, right. so that might have been a bit of an issue. I yeah. was probably getting more whistles right. than she was. But still... a. Eh, yeah it's just it's it's cultural it's such a a huge difference so you were 18 by the way daniele is the badass historian yeah we're going to get into what makes yeah. you badass uh in a in a few minutes but i wanted to to follow up with the cultural thing so you were 18 why why did you come to the states? Uh, the thing about italy is that as
2: much as i there are some things i like about italy but it's very old culturally right you know it's very kind of conservative And I don't mean just not so much politically, but in terms of attitude. You know, Mm -hmm. if you come up with a new idea, a new project about anything, you're gonna have ten people sitting at a bar telling you why it can't be
1: done. Can't happen.
2: With very good arguments, but the attitude is always no. Right. And. I like the fact that the US is sort of the exact opposite, where sometimes even ideas that shouldn't fly sometimes fly, where yeah. people are more willing to take <laughs> risk, even stupid risk, but at least yeah. it's exciting. You yeah. know what I mean? It can be a lot worse, but it can also be a lot better. Whereas Italy is sort of that middle of the road, neither this or that, no risk, no chances, nothing too horrible or too amazing is going to happen. So it's great if you want, uh, sort of um, if you don't really care that much for creating anything for amazing new ideas or anything then it's great to be on vacation Italy is an awesome place right? but in terms of getting anything done with your life it's mm, not so much
1: So did you, at 18, you decided to come to the States?
2: Yeah. Really? Was it a high school
1: uh, thing or college? After
2: high school, I I came here to visit twice on vacation, Mm. and I kind of liked the vibe. And of course, places always look cooler when you don't live there, so it's a little easier. But still, I was thinking, U.S., I had no idea what my life would be like. I could not picture what the following year would be like. In right. Italy, I could predict what my life would be when I was 80. <laughs> right through to retirement. So yeah. So I was like, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. Yeah.
1: So... Wow, that's pretty ballsy yeah. at, at 18 to just up and move to another country. And I mean, it was, I've mean, i done it as an adult, right. but at 18 I don't think I would have done it. That, you know,
2: it was a uh, college and um, you, know, you can always go back. You decide, yeah. I've done a couple of years, it sucks, I go back.
1: Where, where did you go?
2: I came to uh, Santa
1: Monica. Oh, you came, came straight to, here, yeah. oh, well that's a good choice. Yeah. I always meet these people in Spain, you know, who tell me, because I taught yeah. English there, so I'd get a lot of students who were going to go to college in the States right. or whatever, and you know, so it's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm going to Detroit. How, what's Detroit like, you know, or or Iowa. Right. You know, Good like, luck. Uh, yeah. and, and they're picturing Hollywood. Yeah. You know, they're going to Nebraska or something. Yeah, not quite. But, yeah, it's America, but is that what you're thinking? Right. Yeah, yeah. So you so you came to Santa Monica, wow. Yeah. Wow. And I mean it was interesting
2: because it's uh, it looks great the first six months. And then I, begin, I began to actually appreciate some stuff about Italy that I took for granted when right. I lived in Italy, because social relations out here were way uh, more yeah, just yeah. skin deep. Right. Very pleasant at first, but right. nothing beyond that. Right. And so I was like, "This sucks." You know, this is I, I didn't get the um, the difference in friendship in Italy versus friendship here. So after I struggled, the first six months had a blast. Then I started struggling with it. I decided to go back. I went back to Italy. By the time I went back, I wasn't feeling at home in Italy either. So I'm like, hmm. I don't feel at home in Italy. I don't feel at home in the West. This sucks. I don't feel at home anywhere. Came back here just for vacation thinking, whatever. I'm just gonna eventually go back to Italy even though it sucks. I don't know what to do. Started college just a semester for the hell of it just because I needed my student visa to stay active. Yeah. and. Yeah. Within a few days, I met a really hot woman, and so I was like, I think I'm <laughs> going to stay. You know, it's this, uh, The United States it's is amazing. an awesome place, yeah. and I think I'm going to stay. Right? <laughs> you
1: know, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. uh, yeah, two days ago, it sucked. Now, Absolutely. oh, heaven on earth. Yeah. Yeah, I did that. I moved to, to Manhattan. uh After after college, I went. I hitchhiked to Alaska and worked on fishing boats for a couple of years. (laughs) Well, a fishing boat. The second year, the first year, I was in a salmon cannery, which is, uh, yeah, very interesting. Uh, But then I decided. I, I think I want to live in a big city because I've never lived in a big city. Right. Now, this is all bullshit, right? The truth was there was this really hot Puerto Rican girl named Ana that I wanted to hang out and see what was up with her. But I made up this whole sure. narrative of how I wanted to experience New York and I was going right. you know, to get a job uh, driving a taxi and, you know, get this gritty New York experience. Come on, man. It's all uh, she she's was chasing Percy. Right. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's the story. I remember there's a New Yorker cartoon. It's like two old professors sitting in the you know in the like uh, on the grounds of the campus, and this really hot young woman's walking by, and one professor says to the other, "Well, there it goes, professor. The answer to every question <laughs> <laughs> Can't argue with that, <laughs> yeah." So, uh, all right. So then, that sealed your fate. Huh? That that was it. Because yeah. then, even after
2: the relationship was done and over with, by then I had gotten more used to us. I started right. finding my niche. I started training martial arts a lot more than I'd done before. And so, I you really, started martial arts in, in Italy. I started in Italy, but I was for like three, four years. I was kind of messing with it, not really serious, not really knowing which one I was gonna do to start with in a more systematic fashion. And then, mm-hmm. so during that time is when I got more into martial arts. I things in general were clicking better and everything. So even by the time the relationship was over, I was like, "No, now I feel okay. Anyways, yeah. I can I can do this."
1: Is I don't know if Italy. I assume Italy is similar to Spain. You're talking about friendships, mm-hmm. and um, I, I experienced what you were talking about—that there's um there's a, an ease of connecting with people in the states, but it's much harder to develop any depth. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that's because people move so much, you know, I mean, you end up making friends with someone and then they move away or you do, you know, which is a common American thing. But also in Spain, I found that a lot of people are friends with the people they grew up with. Yep. And so it's harder to, to get To integrate yourself into people's social circles, because those circles are set, and they've Mm -hmm. been that way for so long. And even if, you know, and they're very friendly, and they'd invite me over, and we'd all hang out. But it's like, okay, everybody around this table has known each other since they were three years old. Right. And there's me, you know? Uh, is is Italy like that yep. as well? Yeah, very it's very much. static. Yep. Right, people don't leave town, they, which is both the good and the bad, right? Because yeah. on one end yeah. you
2: get that, which is very tribal in a way, and right. there's something very cool about that, and on the other end is why nobody never gets anything done on any other way because you're always stuck right. in the same three miles around there. Right. And, I mean, it's changing, you know. If you grow up in big cities, people tend to experience life outside of it more. They travel abroad what more. What part of Italy are you from? Milan.
1: Milan, so, no. you know, industrial.
2: Yeah, ugly as hell, but, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's a uh, it's big industrial yeah, city. it's and, a serious uh, place. But, um, but you know, so at least it's, um the metropolitan aspect, at least, makes it easier to connect with a wider world. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, yeah, people tend to stay put a lot longer. So it's and to me the problem was Italy wasn't friendly enough. You know, to me I needed more out of human relationship in a way that I wanted something more than that. Mm. Coming to US was a big shock. Cause definitely, there was a lot less than that even. Mm. So I was like, shit, this really doesn't. I don't know. And eventually I adapted. I realized, okay, what I want doesn't quite exist. I mean, I'm sure it exists somewhere, you know, but not exactly. It would come. Like, for example, I hang out in uh, on some American Indian reservations where, you know, life sucks in a lot of ways, extreme poverty, high rate of alcoholism, lots of, you know, the negative statistics. The plus side is there's the idea of the tribe, this sense of community so damn strong and it's beautiful. There's something really amazing about it. But at the same time, the price to pay is so nasty in other ways that it's not exactly like everybody want to sign up and be part of it either. So it's it's tricky because, you know, my ideal would be of uh, sort of globalized tribes in a way, you know, mm. a tribal aspect, which I really deeply love for the intensity of human relationships that it brings. But at the same time, not tribe as in stuck with the same thirty people all your life, and you never leave your valley. But you know, connected with a bigger world.
1: Art That's balance. it. You're right. I mean, I, I'm working on a, a book now called "Civilized to Death," mm-hmm. and and part. I mean, a lot of the the book is a critique of civilization, mm-hmm. and and a big part of it is community, mm-hmm. right? And how community has been so fragmented and fractured and yep. commodified and so on. Um, and And if you look at you know the the science of happiness there 's this whole uh, what 's it called positive psychology uh-huh. you know um, the number one predictor of contentment of life contentment is whether you feel embedded in a community right you know and you 've got friends who care about you and love you, and you feel protected by that that social network. I think that 's like probably one of the deepest human requirements to, to have mental health um and you but you're right that that the other side of that is you're limited by those relationships mm-hmm. as well so yeah. i want you know i don't know whether we're sort of ping-ponging back and forth between um you know this this romanticized sense of in my case anyway a romanticized sense of prehistory mm-hmm. you know everybody was happy and right. life was great You know, in the modern world, back and forth, trying to, you know, not being able to decide which is better. Or if maybe we're actually at a point in in human history where it's possible to take some control of our destiny and with this understanding of where we came from Mm -hmm. in a prehistoric and historic sense integrate the most important elements of that into our lives so you know like is it possible are we kidding ourselves to think that we can have some sort of tribal community in the 21st century no i think that's what anthropology should be you know i
2: what anthropology is sometimes a whole different game you know but what anthropology should be is a creative aspect of this is taking what we know about the human past, in some cases even the human presence in other parts of the world,
0: hmm.
2: uh, borrowing basically from different cultures, different time periods. Borrowing in the sense of taking what can work now. Because you right. know nobody you can read the best book about what life was ten thousand years ago or what life is today in a different place. It doesn't really matter because you're not gonna be able to live in the exact same circumstances. So it's It's entertainment. You know what I mean? It's fun. You can fantasize about, oh, that would have been cool about this and that. And then, of course, there are also the other things that were not so cool that go with it. But to me, what good anthropology should be is being able to study this stuff, to be able to take great ideas and now we can reinvent them today. Right. So that take the best out of these aspects and be able to repackage them in a way that work in a globalized context. And not only work, but work even better because we can sort of
1: take the best without getting stuck with all the other stuff. So you're proposing almost like um, an applied anthropology or... uh uh, prescriptive anthropology, yeah. right? Yeah, it's
2: about making making you elevating the quality of human life, right? If it's just about some academic crap, studying something that has no relevance to how you walk out of the classroom and leave, who cares? That's just purely a weird masturbatory exercise. Not even because <laughs> at least masturbation leads to a good orgasm, but there's <laughs> a redeeming quality to that. You know, a yeah. lot of academic stuff is purely for its own sake there's no
1: point so is know. this what makes you a badass historian seriously yeah <laughs> so uh okay I, then i want to be a badass anthropologist yeah that's yeah, the way to yeah. do it right <laughs> which explains why we both i first heard about you from uh our mutual friend pete mccormick yeah. uh there's if you listeners out there are interested there's uh, an episode with pete i don't mm-hmm. know if you heard yeah um Pete is a fast talker, he is is a fast talking son of a bitch, Uh, but he's always saying something interesting. He's one of the the smartest, most entertaining guys I know. But uh, anyway, you worked with Pete. How did you meet Pete? Uh, It was a funny story,
2: I'll I'll try to make it short, there's a long story behind it. but Uh. Basically, way back at one point I was in Wales for strange reasons, and while I was there I found out that a professor at a local university had written this book. And in this book, he in a couple of chapters, he hammered on me on something that I had written, right? Yeah. So I figured, pop, okay. So I showed up to the guy's office door, knocking on the door saying, hello, I'm Daniele Bolelli. No kidding. And uh, it was a fun interaction. I mean, the guy was actually really nice. It was a good interaction. But what happened is, I don't know if out of guilt or what, but when they called him because he's a top uh, Bruce Lee expert. So they called him to be part of this documentary that Bruce Lee's daughter was putting together. I am Bruce Lee. And they asked him, do you have anyone else you would recommend? And so he mentioned my name. And so Pete called me one day and saying, "Are you available in LA tomorrow morning to shoot?" I'm like, "Sure." You know, so that's how I met him and we did the interview and we we got along really well because Pete is a really smart, really nice guy. I like him a lot. Yeah. So after that, we started chatting more, tossing ideas about future projects, and so that's how it started. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, it's all because of my mafia connection You're and wrong. showing up with my gun to the guy's office saying <laughs> do something for my career or else right
1: right He right. shot him in the knees right yeah yeah that's well pete i, I was I, I think i forgot to to finish this and there's an episode with pete in the archives mm-hmm. so anybody who wants to to check out pete check out the archives he pre- directed uh, this film, I Am Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. which broke all audience records on Spike TV, where you're nope. you're featured and uh, Kobe Bryant uh, and. Uh, Bruce Lee's daughter. Who else? The guy on Modern Family. Who's yeah. a, like uh, What is he? A jiu-jitsu expert yeah, or something? Yeah,
2: apparently. Yep. His uh, study with the
1: Gracie. Funny guy. Uh, amazing. I mean, not amazing. the guy
2: you would picture. Definitely. No, he, yeah. he's, he
1: plays this sort of schlubby old yeah. dude, but yeah. apparently he's a real badass. Yeah. There's Mickey Rourke. Yeah. In Mickey there, Rourke. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Someone else. Oh, oh uh, the the Filipino, the great Filipino boxer Pacquiao. Yeah,
2: yeah Manny Pacquiao. Except yeah. he speak no English, so he, he had like <laughs> three because
1: but they flew to the philippines to i know him, and they? They, pete <laughs> went to interview
2: me and that's when they find out that he spoke no english it's <laughs> <was> like oops <laughs> this is gonna be, be tough gross.
1: yeah yeah and then pete's other uh, he, he's done a lot of films and, mm-hmm. and various various stuff but uh the other film which i have to say is one of my all-time favorite documentaries is uh facing ali that's awesome it's An really amazing, amazing. Uh, yeah. just uh <clears throat> that was my introduction to mm-hmm. him pete read sex at dawn and got in touch and said he'd done some films and mentioned this ali film and i said oh i love ali i grew up watching ali. right and uh, pete put a dvd in the mail and you know fedexed it over to spain and cassie and i looked at it and about halfway through the film cassie looked at me with a sort of stunned look on her face and said, this man is an artist. Seriously. <sighs> That's really a great is. film. Yeah. And it's, and you know, anyone who, I'm sure it's available on Amazon.com, mm-hmm. probably on, yep. on Netflix and whatever. Um, but even if you're not interested at all in boxing, it's an amazing film because it really isn't about boxing. No. It's about, it's about a kind of love and respect that men can have for each other when they are trying to knock each other senseless. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really about, and I, I was so moved by the fact that Ali sometimes would have his agents set up fights with guys who were down on their luck so that the payday would really yep. help them out. Ken Norton and yep. the, the guy in Toronto, mm-hmm. I don't remember his name, mm-hmm. uh, uh, whose, I think his wife had had committed suicide oh, yeah, and one yeah, of yeah. his kids, kids od yeah, And yeah. it was like his life and he was a tough bastard and like Ali never knocked him down. Yep. And And uh, yeah, it's just because, you know, he's going to beat somebody up between the big title fights, right, you know, so for the tune-ups. And you got half a million dollars or something in 1972, yeah. whenever that was. That was a lot of oh, money. It's still I'll get a lot of money. By
2: Ali, that's what yeah, <laughs> for exactly. Half a million
1: dollar. Mike Tyson. It might. I might hold out for a little more.
2: Yeah. <laughs> There's a meanness to the dude. That's, yeah. Yeah,
1: that's, yeah. Those fights with Tyson. It was kind of like you know watching the. You know, I used to feed. I, I used to take care of these. Um, what was it called? It was an Indian rock python for my biology right. teacher in high school. And this thing was like 20 feet long Jesus. in this big aquarium. And I did like drop a live rat into the right. thing. The Tyson fights always reminded me of that. really. You know, the one guy sort of running around like a nervous rat and the other one just watching and waiting for the moment. And then it's over. Yeah. Oh, Boom, yeah. Gone. Anyway. Okay. So, so, uh, did you, did you study history uh, right off the bat? No, no,
2: it <laughs> would be too easy, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I started out, I originally started anthropology because I had a more ah, okay. romanticized view of what anthro could and should be. I, and you're moving between cultures. Yeah, it it's look sense, except that yeah. then I met a lot of anthropologists, right. and that quickly changed
1: my mind. It's, it's very academic. It's scary. I mean, the field work is great. It's yeah. great that you know somebody goes off to Africa or whatever, But then afterwards, the career opportunities are pretty limited. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, is is like everybody was heavily involved in
2: academia. Not everybody, because the exceptions are the cool part. But the norm of academia in any field is boring as hell. It has to be dry. If it looks even remotely exciting, you're you're a bad guy because you're compromising academic Uh, integrity or some kind. (laughs) So is, I hate them all, but in this case I hated anthropologists first because they, you know, I had these big ideas of how it can be, and I realized, yeah, that's keep your ideas in your dreams because that's not the way it is. Mm-hmm. So I got my BA in Anthro, decided uh, actually I actually didn't even decide. I had I had applied for a PhD in Anthro, and I had a uh, um, couple of professors who wanted to work for me. It was already kind of a shoe in. The guy on the committee hated these guys so as something against them made sure that they wouldn't take me and that's when i realized by then i was already kind of turned off by anthro i was like you know what let's try something else my main motivation also back then italy had a mandatory military service and you could Uh, only postpone it as long as you were in school right so i'm like i need to do something you know so i picked up um, um, american indian studies which was kind of a cross Mm. between uh, anthro and history and plus i was already so heavily involved with native communities that it was the master was a piece of cake, so mm. I did that. Started teaching with that, but then obviously I realized that teaching opportunities with an MA in American Indian studies are not the greatest. Did, and, you, uh, did
1: you focus on particular tribes or
2: region? or Started out mostly Lakota, Great Plains kind of thing, right. but then expanded elsewhere. Mm. And, um, and then I realized I wanted to expand my range a little bit, so I did a second master's in history. And uh, with that, I was able to start teaching history of religions that I have, I have a blast doing. It's so much fun too. Poke at people's sensitivity. History <laughs> of religions.
1: Mm. Yeah, sure. So that you was bring fun. some relativity <laughs> to God. Yeah, yeah, people don't like that.
2: No, uh, or yeah. they like it as long as you're picking on all the other religions. Right. Not right. so much when it's their own. Right. But, um, <laughs> so there was that. I started teaching U.S. history, which is funny because I didn't grow up in U.S. I never took a U.S. history class in my life. I just they told me, "Can you teach it?" I'm like, "Sure, of sure. course." Let me hit the books real quick. And, uh, so, and but I'm all, kind of all over the place because I taught in. Um, I taught classes in Asian-American studies, not being Asian-American and never having taken a course in Asian-American studies. So that was fun. But because I came up with sort of this idea about uh, martial arts, uh, both in cinema as well as history and philosophy of martial arts. Mm. And it's not like they had anybody else who could do that class. So if you, they like the course, you would just be either me or nobody. So they decided, ah, let's take the weird Italian guy. Sure, why not? Students like him, so sure. <laughs> we need the money So yeah, bring that's, students. Hey, it's and, entertainment. Uh, and uh, yeah. so I've been kind of really all over the place is, which is the ultimate crime in the eyes of academia because you're supposed to specialize in one thing and one thing only and never, you know, if you're a historian, you're supposed to know everything that happened on that street corner in 1712 between six and 6.15 p.m. and that's all you're ever gonna do, right? And yeah. that's really not the way I work. I thrive I on connections and right. I drive on applying this stuff to life, because ultimately, mm. to me, that's what it's all about. You know, I don't care about tantra, about history, about psychology, about philosophy, about martial arts, or rather, I care about all of these things, but I only care about them in the in the measure that they serve life, to right. make life more fun, more enjoyable, more. That's what to me is all about. The specific field, whatever, gets old really quick
1: after a while. Right. Yeah, the knowledge is is. <clears throat> I I guess there's some value in knowledge for its sure. own sake, but I agree with you that, that knowledge that has some practical value is really life's short, mm-hmm. you know, life is short. So if it doesn't have some practical value and application to life yeah, yeah. There's there's something very masturbatory about it, as you as you said earlier.
2: Yeah, and I mean, by
1: practical, we, we're not
2: just saying a uh, study business or something. Practical can be no, poetry, You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But because yeah. it brings bringing because meaning it, yeah. to
1: your life yeah. and, and and coherence and yeah. I mean, I studied literature for mm-hmm. that same reason. It's like, you know, well, what am I going to study? I I'm not, I'm young. I'm eighteen. I, I'm you know passionate and interested in the world. So I'm going to study literature because it's talking about life you yep. know what life is and that's you know i read henry david thoreau and my my uh my real intellectual passion in those years was the the american transcendentalists yep. who are sort of like they were like buddhists but they didn't know, exactly. they didn't know anything about buddhism <laughs> yep. but, you know they were all about god is in nature they were right. almost animists, and and uh yeah really interesting interesting stuff and then of course you know similar to you i i had a a crisis where, I, I mentioned I went to Alaska, right? So I I said I went after college, but really what happened was I skipped my junior year. Mm-hmm. I found a loophole in the student handbook where I could graduate on time and skip my junior year. Nice. So I took off and went to Alaska and um, had all these adventures. And, you know, I went to prison and got shot at and, you know, <laughs> all this crazy shit happened. Right. And, you know, I went, when I went to Alaska, I was like... Um, yeah, you know, I was I was a, a standout student. I won all these awards. I was you know, you know, protege of the head of the department right. and all this stuff. And um, in the course of that trip to Alaska and back, I came to see that I was becoming a pedantic pain in the ass. Right uh you know that i i mean i went to alaska in my backpack in addition to the tents and the sleeping bags and all that i probably had seven or eight books you know the collected poetry of dh lawrence and you know this (laughs) the typical reading of the guy in the salmon cannery exactly a lot to talk about with my my colleagues uh but um yeah, I, you know, I looked at my life, and I looked at the course my life was going, similar to what you said about Italy. Like, you could sort of look ahead and say, in my case, it was looking at my my professors. One of my professors was a, a star at Oxford. He's, I think, still the youngest person to ever be a Don at Oxford. Mm-hmm. He was 21. He was a full Don at Oxford. Um, and you know, he was going to help me get into Oxford to do my PhD, and, yeah, I, whatever. And... I looked at them and that life, and said, "Okay, now I'll, be, I'll go to Oxford, get my PhD, you know, write some essay about you know Milton and you know Milton's bowel movements or whatever." <laughs> and uh, you know, best case scenario, by thirty-five, I'll have tenure at Princeton. But mm, you know, more realistically, I'll have tenure at. Swarthmore Girls College in you know, some you know, somewhere and that'll be it pretty much, you know, and then if I'm lucky, I'll teach this literature I really love, which is Herman Melville and uh, Walt Whitman and all this literature that's about experience, Mm -hmm. but my own firsthand experience will be limited to school. Yep. So I'll be a fucking fraud. Yep. And so it was was a real crisis of consciousness for Mm -hmm. me. And uh, I decided to just abandon that life and not go back to academics or make any commitment to anything, Mm -hmm. woman, career, anything, till I was 30. Right. I remember reading an essay by um, Robert Frost. I think it's called The Shape a Poem Makes. Mm -hmm. And there's this beautiful image in that where he says, like a piece of ice on a hot stove, a poem must ride its own melting. <laughs> and I remember thinking, all right, I'm going to ride my, the melting of my innocence yep. <laughs> until I'm 30. You know, and That's let's the see way what
2: happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's something that Thoreau says, uh, I forget the exact quote, but it's basically criticizing philosophers because they say, these are not philosophers, these are people who talk about philosophers, right. who talk about other people's ideas, but they never had a single creative idea in their life yeah and i'm like that's basically what brother right. philosophy is you know right. and his point is philosophy is not something you think or yeah you also think it but philosophy is something you live right in your muscle in your joints is something you sweat is something and yeah. that i can very much relate to because again it boils down to being real to life as opposed to living in this abstract bubble of uh, just intel i mean i like you know i'm a little weird nerd i like my intellectual stuff but that's part of life if it's the only thing you ever know how
1: sad you know there's a chinese saying uh, uh, what is it to to know and do nothing Mm -hmm. is not is to not know yep yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. So the the thought is an important. It's mm-hmm. it's essential. Absolutely. But then you have to do something with it. You know, if you sit around thinking about traveling, right. but you never <laughs> go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. you haven't been anywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 So uh, you mentioned uh American Indians. You know, mm-hmm. that was my my first intellectual passion mm-hmm. in life was mm-hmm. American Indians. I mean, to the point where I came home from school, this is like from, I don't know, 10 to 15 years of age. I came home from school, first thing I did, took off all my clothes, took a bath towel. My parents had these purple and pink bath towels, folded into thirds, put it up put a belt around me, a bath towel loincloth, and I would be in my (laughs) loincloth all night, you know, and I slept naked because my Kung Fu teacher told me a man should always sleep naked and not wear underwear. I I don't know. Maybe you can tell me if this is really part of martial arts training or if he was just fucking with me. But So I was was doing uh, Kung Fu classes. Uh, This was in, oh, amazing. Pete and I... Both lived in towns called Beaver Falls. You're kidding me. No, two different. I was in Pennsylvania. He was in British Columbia. But we both grew up in a town called Beaver Falls. You guys, somebody, Isn't somebody listening right now, need to hook up the project that they are working on and make it happen. Because I mean, come on. Well, that's that's what I felt when when that came to light. I thought uh, it's my destiny yeah. to work with this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, okay, well, we'll get back to the kung fu. Yeah. The project you mentioned is, uh, I guess, I could talk about it now. This won't come out for a month or so uh the uh pete and i worked on a created a concept for a tv show that we call sex drive Uh turn on the truth and the idea is to you know it it probably will never get made because the idea is to take an uncompromising um clear-eyed non-judgmental look at human sexuality right what could be more subversive and obvious than right. that, right? And uh, so, you yeah, know, we want to... I mean, there are all these... they are like 18-episode um, summaries in the pitch package Um you know, like, uh, you know, what is gay? Mm -hmm. We think we know what it means to be gay, but what does it mean? You know, there are cultures around the world. There are are cultures in Papua New Guinea Mm -hmm. that believe that semen contains the essence of masculinity. So the boys who, like the sort of alpha male, you know, Quarterback of the football team kind of guys who want to grow up to be the most macho, suck as much cock as possible right. so that they'll ingest all this masculinity and then be, be real nope. he-man. Is that gay? You know, what's that? Right, right, right. You know, so there are all these interesting constructs around things that seem obvious to us, which yeah. gets back to your points about anthropology. <laughs> Anyway, so that's our project. And then now you and Pete also worked on a project that's very similar, but instead of sexuality, it's more history. Say something about that. Oh, yeah, it's badass history. Yeah, the whole plan is
2: basically to take a very... Edgy take on history shows because you know the problem of history shows is that mostly they are boring as hell. You know, right. they are some dude in a suit and tie uh, lecturing in front of bookshelves, and then your little yeah. recreation <laughs> yeah. of the past, some dusty
1: old fuck with uh, elbow patches yeah. <laughs> exactly. and a tweed jacket. Yeah,
2: it's painfully boring, right? And uh, kind of make it edgy with a right. more Anthony Baldwin type of take where you travel to places, you are right there, and also have it content and delivering being edgy, as far as far from shying away from the blood, sex, and gore of it all, jumping into it, not just for, you know, being, I'm about to use a word in English that I can't pronounce, so I'll skip on that. Uh, Not just for the sake of show, which I mean, granted, entertainment is good, and sex and violence not only sell, but they sell because we like them, because they are fascinating to us as humans. But beside that, kind of taking a, um not shine away in, in the sense from real authenticity when it comes to uh human experience when it comes to um just the you know character historical characters that are extremely controversial like one of my idols is this guy iku he was uh, the illegitimate son of the emperor of japan at the end of the 1300s he became one of the giants of Zen in uh, at that time, but the guy's absolute. his main passions were Zen Saki, and women, and that 's all he lived for, and to him, they were part of one and the same you know and so working on characters like that that are defies expectations and, uh, you know, give you a deeper appreciation for what it meant to be this crazy Japanese dude in the 1400s is there's a real, there's storytelling involved. It's not just some random Mm -hmm. stuff about who was president at the time, uh, real human experience with passion, with sweat, with blood, with all of it. that's how you make history come to life. You know, yeah. that's kind of when I lecture in school uh, all the time people are telling me, "Oh, you know, I Fucking hated history all the time, and I'm having the time of my life in this class, and it's not just because of my lovely good looks. It's because and of that the sexy accent. Exactly. Yeah. It's because uh, it's because you make it for what it for what it can be, which is real life to us is interesting. You know, we yeah. like storytelling. We like wild tales that are the the more real they are, the better in that sense. But we tend to sanitize things, it. Isn't that you know? amazing? We, eh? we suck out all the fun of the material yeah. and left with dry facts that don't mean anything. What's the point? You know.
1: And, and, and the, the juice is what makes it interesting. You know, and so, and history is so full of juice. I and mean, da- yep. You know, daily life is so juicy mm-hmm. and interesting. It's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. not
2: hard to make it good. Actually, it's it's amazing that yeah. people manage to make it so
1: bad most of the time. The problem is that the good stuff gets lost. It does often because it's so sanitized. I mean, yeah. one of my favorite. You're talking about you know interesting figures from history. One of the people I would most love to meet is Richard Burton, mm-hmm. not the actor, but the linguist yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, explorer. Yeah. He was he was Irish, uh, 19th century. Uh, spoke 27 languages or something, was the first person to translate um, the Kama Sutra yep. into a Western language. He, he, he spoke Arabic so well that he um, dressed up as a, a Bedouin, I think, mm-hmm. and was the first Westerner to go to Mecca. Yep. Undercover. Can you imagine... Like, you have to have some real confidence in your, in your Arabic linguistic skills to like, you know, put a fucking turban on your head and walk into Mecca. And, and he got busted, didn't he? Did he?
2: Yeah. As far as I remember the story, he got busted and then they were about to chop his head off and he was there with like the royal whoever, the local lord would decide his fate. Oh, I didn't know this. In the course of this philosophical conversation, the, <laughs> he, he gave this answer that stunned everybody. And so the local local boss said you know what you're too cool you really go, you know no shit.
1: Oh, that's it would be
2: a waste to chop off your head because oh, there's such God. good stuff coming out of you so you <laughs> go free <laughs> wow
1: he talked his way out of yep. it good yeah, luck yeah, with that yeah. wow yeah I, and he's such an interesting guy and he was in the foreign service and he was in india for years what's now known as india and um yeah, it was all over in Africa, all over the place. And wherever he went, he studied sexuality. Right. He was very interested in, in sexuality and he wrote about it. And after he died, as I'm sure you know, his fucking wife burned his papers, threw him in the fireplace to protect his reputation. Yeah. What the fuck, man? That's like, you know. And she's the
2: mother of all historians, basically, because that's what we do. Because that's it. what we do. Yeah.
1: We, we, yeah, we destroy the good stuff. Yep. Absolutely the stuff that's human.
2: So that's why in fact, calling it badass is even funny because that's just what history is. You know, the yeah. reality of it is badass in itself. But yeah. it's funny that we even have to consider it badass. Badass is opposed to what? Right. You know, the dry, lifeless stuff that normally professional historians <laughs> turn history into right. being.
1: Yeah, look look at like the you know, the popular conception of Christopher Columbus mm-hmm. and then who the dude really was and what he really did. I know. He was a maniac. Yeah. He was a fucking murderous, genocidal freak, yep, you yep, know, yep. as they had to be. And and those guys, who were those guys? They're like, they're from Extremadura. Mm-hmm. I mean, Extremadura is still a shithole, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the 1500s. Yeah. You know, it's like, how bad does life have to be for you to say, yeah, sign me up on these fucking ships going, I don't know where, and I'll probably never come back. Right. And, you know, I'll be eating shoes and, and you know, yeah, yeah. Tough, that was tough. You know, you you reminded me of um, a friend of mine. I wanted to mention earlier that you have some. So, did I mention Tony? No, I remember I was going to. Uh, um, this is what happens when you get old, ladies and gentlemen. I think you, you didn't mention him probably before we went. On oh, the oh, oh, was it before we before went on maybe the we are. Oh, Napoleon's oh, maybe, um, privates. No, I think. Oh, was yeah. Before we went
2: on the air, was yes. it before? Yeah, oh, okay. Because
1: uh, the the episode I recorded with him just went up today. Right. Actually, it, it tells you when we're recording. Um, yeah and he 's similar to 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 you in the respect that he also studies history, but mm-hmm. he 's looking for the juicy, sexy, yep. interesting stuff yep. so his last book is called the perverts i think it 's called the perverts grand Tour and it 's about how um, you know it was it was sort of um, uh, typical for British gentlemen after they finished college to take a tour of Europe in mm-hmm. the 19th century. And uh, they would go to all the, you know, the famous uh, uh, whorehouses in Paris and Italy. And, and they went right. to, uh, you know, the secret uh, display of Pompeii, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, all the, I'm sure you've, you're yep. aware of all this, that, you know, in people's dining rooms, they had these huge frescoes of orgies. Yep. Like it was, you know, so sexuality was just such a part of, of daily life. And... Uh, yeah, and he even found, I, I guess, he went into the um, the castle of the Marquis de Sade in southern mm-hmm. France, which is now owned by Pierre Cardin. <laughs> he talked his way into a nice. party or something That's so awesome. he could get in there. And he was in the Vatican. Oh, wow. And he sent, it was really funny, he, he was in the Vatican in the library uh, looking at some document, and he sent me an email. He said, I'm sitting in the vatican and they have wi-fi <laughs> and i wrote back i said you should look at some porn yeah <laughs> go to a porn site right now <laughs> yeah and he did I, right. I think he did i don't know um anyway yeah tony so what, now this is something else you were talking about oh martial arts yeah. okay so what what you started martial arts young. You were mm-hmm. before you came to the States. Yeah, in my teens. Yeah. Were um, is, Was it the same reason I started martial arts? Is that assholes were like giving you shit and you wanted to have uh, some defensive capability? Partially I was, uh, you know, nerdy,
2: shy, too much in my head and mm-hmm. all of that. So martial art would be the perfect antidote to that, precisely to the stuff we we're talking about. You know, rather than ending up this nerdy guy who only can yeah. always talk and write something, actually have something that you sweat, that you feel in your mass. Martial arts is real in that sense. You know what but I mean? But but it real... appeals
1: to people like you and me totally. b- because it's very interesting. Yep. It's not it's not, you know, playing football mm-hmm. or whatever, you know what everyone it it's, there's a very deep philosophical aspect
2: to it. I mean, in some ways it's literally about life and that in the sense that it is about this struggle that is to put it in Nietzsche terms beyond good and evil. isn't there's no moral dimension is about mm who wins and who loses, who, and not, again, uh, throwing a ball somewhere, which can be fun, but it's a, that's a game. Uh, martial art, in a sense, is about the basic human struggle, just grappling with violence, grappling with conflict, ultimately grappling with your own sense of mortality. Yeah. You know, because the thing that you figure out eventually in martial art is that everybody loses, eventually. There's no getting out of it. You know, hmm. we, we get enamored with the empowerment of martial arts, with the idea that we become these killing machines who can get out of any situation, Bruce Lee style. But the ultimate realization is that no matter how good you get, you're still going to get your ass kicked at some point because there's By always... time, funny. if nothing else. Exactly. And uh, so dealing, it forces you to deal with very deep, real things about human life. In, uh, in a non-nerdy fashion, because mm. you, f- you learn them through your muscle before you even get them through your brain. Some people never ever get them through their brain. It's something that they experience, but it never become an intellectual process. So I like it a lot. I started playing with martial arts, but then I I had sort of this romantic view of martial arts that was very, you know, I read Zen Buddhism, I read all these things. I was like, I wanted, you know, Master Yoda to teach me the way of the force (laughs) kind of thing, you know? And so I had a bit of a romanticized view of the whole thing and it's funny because my process was the exact opposite that normally people have which is they start being all i want to punch somebody's head off and Mm -hmm. eventually they get the deeper philosophical stuff i started with the deeper philosophical outlook and eventually i was like Shut up with philosophy already let's just fight you know i'm i'm tired to talk all day enough of that let's just go for the raw experience so i started going my taste got progressively more barbaric over time so whereas i started <laughs> doing tai chi and you know the pretty <laughs> right. stuff eventually right. has been all uh, mixed martial art uh, brazilian jiu jitsu boxing you know uh. where it's about action, there's right. spar because a lot of martial arts if you don't spar, if you never spar, it becomes another philosophical thing. Right. You know, it's something that I would do this if somebody did that. It's like, how the fuck do you know? Have you ever is that ever happened? Have somebody ever tried to knock your head off? Yeah. As, and sparring of course in a relatively safe fashion give you as close to the real experience as you can get without actually going out and getting killed by somebody. Yeah. And so it's um, it's appealing to me because it forces me in very real fashion to deal with fear. Mm. because when you spar, unless you're really scaringly tough, there's always an element of fear when you spar, when you compete with somebody who has been spending the last few years perfecting their (laughs) technique to beat you up (laughs) better. And it's like, are you ready for that? Three, two, one, gong, go. You know, it's like, oh shit, you know, there's that moment where everything tightens inside of you and you have to act through the fear. Yeah. Do you do full contact? Yeah. Yeah. It's scary as hell, man. Yeah. It's like it's. I spent um a lot of time before any time I've ever done fights before a fight, man. The, the week before, I'm in a panic. The night before, I don't sleep. I spend. I. Well, you find quickly find out that the expression scare the shit out of you is not just a metaphor. <laughs> you, know, you end up going to the bathroom 17 times yeah. in one morning, you can't get anything down, your muscles feel frozen, you can barely breathe, and now you have to fight somebody mm-hmm. where a fraction of a second will make the difference between getting knocked out or not. Man, every time I've ever done that, I swear to myself, this is the last time ever I'm gonna do this shit. Why do I wanna do this? Let me eat chocolate on my couch and leave me alone. And then, but there's something appealing about the experience because it's, um, you can lie to yourself. You know, it's there's a reality of it. There's an immediate life feedback that you get in a ring that it, you don't get in too many other circumstances. And so that's part of why I like it. And for a control freak like me, it also forces me to realize that I don't control everything. That mm-hmm. no matter how well you prepare, you're going to lose. No, maybe not in the ring, but as you put it, you will lose by time, you lose because everybody dies, you lose because you get old, you lose because, you know, shit eventually is going to happen out of your control, how you're going to deal with it. Yeah. And that yeah. to me is the biggest lesson from martial art is not the winning part, because yeah. that's just technique. That's, it's that's learning how point. to get your ass kicked.
1: Right. And staying with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, my my experience with martial arts is strange. I I started doing it when I was probably eleven, I think, something like that. And um I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I, I never I wasn't into team sports mm-hmm. at all. I was uh, smaller than most. I like, was always too small to get on the football team. Right. Thank God. Now I'd have brain damage probably. But um, and, and I, I was just you know my family moved, so I was never one of the cool kids. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was always an outsider. And um, but I started doing this kung fu, and I just I loved it. I loved the you know coming to the the school, and there was a. a a little Buddhist shrine mm-hmm. with a fountain, and you'd bow to the fountain, and then you'd go and put on your your uh, what's it called a gi, I think, but or, not your underwear, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, underwear, okay. no underwear. Uh, you know, and and uh, then you'd bow to the floor, and right. there was this respect for the school and and uh, the meditation and the learning to fall and the all you know, it, it, it was just um, I, I found it uh fascinating and, and 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 empowering in a sense i mean i never i never fought anyone using it but i it made me feel more comfortable mm-hmm. in the world in a way
2: definitely um
1: but then something weird happened i was 15 and um i i wanted to uh i, I from a very early age i was fascinated by psychology and i was reading these books about, um, dream interpretation and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, uh, I, I was born in 62. So this is 77. And, um, you know, this was like ESP was real big, you know what I'm talking about? And telepathy and all this kind of stuff. So I'd read this book about dreams and I had a tape recorder next to my bed. One of those early tape recorders where the microphone had an on off switch and, um, I sort of trained myself to wake up after a dream, a vivid dream, and I would just sort of half awake and I would turn on the microphone and and say whatever the dream was and then turn it off and go back to sleep. And, And then when I got home from school the next day, I'd listen to whatever I'd recorded the night before. So one night I had this dream. That my teacher, who was a guy named Roy Wetzel, mm-hmm. he was probably 27 years old. He was half uh, Okinawan, half American. Uh, and he, he basically ran the school. And he was this really good-looking guy, and he was super badass, and you know, he was the, the sort of ideal mm-hmm. figure. And his father, who was named Willie Wetzel was this creepy old dude who always sat in the corner with sunglasses on, never said a word, but sometimes he would be there watching the you know the thing, and he was just this menacing thing. And there was the story that Willie, who had the highest Dan, you know, tenth Dan black belt in this style, had gotten the you know like the final test in in China in those days this was the, I don't know if this is true you probably sure. know more about this than I do but the story that went around was that when you went for the the highest level they would uh, get volunteers from a prison And the idea was if the prisoners killed you, they go free. But if you killed all three of the prisoners, then you got your 10th done. And the prisoners could have like a chain, a sword, a knife, and they could choose a weapon, not a gun, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then they put you in a room with these three guys and someone comes out alive. Right. So that was the story about Willie. And that's why he was so weird and whatever. Um, So anyhow, one night I have this dream. I'm standing on a hillside looking down through a bamboo forest. And there's a a uh, path at the at the base of the hill. And I see Roy mm-hmm. come running in left to right. And he stops in front of me and he looks back over his shoulder and he's scared. And I've never seen this guy right. scared of anything, right? And then he runs off. And then right behind him comes his father mm-hmm. chasing him. Right. Very weird dream. So I recorded the dream, went back to sleep, went to school the next day, forgot all about the dream. And at school there was this guy... Who now at this point I was teaching at the at the school I had like a yeah I was a the the whole belt system was weird there they didn't have colored belts they had uh, stripes on the belt but anyway I was teaching and there was a guy at school who so I'm in like seventh grade I think this guy at school who was had started studying in the school and he always wanted to hang out with me. Because I was a teacher and right. he was starting, and I was, but he was, I didn't want to hang out with him. So he came up to me in school and he was like, Oh, did you hear what happened? Roy, did you hear what happened to Roy? And he was like, Ah, dude, just leave me alone, yeah. you know, whatever. And I, I blew him off. So then after school, my mother was waiting for me at the bus stop, which she never did because right. it was like a four block walk to our house. And she was waiting and she said, Are you okay? I said, What, what are you talking about? She told me that that night, Roy had killed his father. They had uh, Roy... And, and there was it was in the paper, and right. it's, like, it's a big thing. But what happened was Roy had gone home and found his father stuffing his mother's head into the toilet. Ooh. And they got into a fight. The mother ran into a room, locked the door, and Roy's daughter was there. And they, and they stayed in the bedroom. And the father and the son fought. And apparently there were samurai swords on the wall. They took the swords down. The swords were bent at right angles when the police got there. Jesus. Willie was dead. Roy had a hundred and some stitches, including inside his esophagus. What the hell? I don't know how that happened. So I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, yeah this is like, I always thought of, of this Kung Fu as like a peaceful, right, beautiful, right, right. almost yeah. dance kind of thing. And here this guy had killed his father. My idol had right. killed his father. And then, of course, I turn on the tape recorder and there's my fucking dream. Right, exactly, very, very intense that's so and then my family moved to Connecticut right. shortly after mm-hmm. that, and and the school burned down, and there was all this like crazy karma going on, so that 's my my experience with martial arts. I was Damn. scared I felt yeah. after that because you know you learn you learn to respond without thinking, sure, right. Someone comes up from behind you and mm-hmm. puts you in a chokehold, you just go sure. and you just do it, you don 't right. think about it. Of course, then I'm thinking I'm walking around like I'm going to kill my friend who's right, joking right, right. with me. You know, I was I was pretty freaked out by that. Damn. Yeah, that's an experience right there. Yeah.
2: And that's, by the way, what we mean by that's. In history, that would be the kind of story that gets edited out, and that's where the juice is. You know, the story you just told. This is, you tell stories like this, this is, regardless of whether what lesson what draw from it, what you think about it, that's a hell of a story. You know what I mean? Just in itself, the basic elements of it all.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Then you can kind of make up whatever you want about it, but damn, that's a story. And that's scary, weird, disturbing gets you in the gut yeah. you know what i mean yeah and uh but man talk about some serious adiposities there and
1: yeah weird, uh, <laughs> pretty father, edible. yeah yeah, yeah pretty edible yeah roy was in prison for a while but i eventually i mean i moved away but i was told that he got off on self-defense charges mm-hmm. but this is after he'd been in jail for a year or right something. right right yeah
2: wow But the Chinese prisoner stories sound shady. Yeah, yeah. Legend, uh, romance, Shaolin, And a lot of martial art places are like that. That's what's funny about it, is that a lot of it are nothing like what we're saying in terms of being kind of delivering the nitty gritty, very real, no bullshit stuff. There's a lot of romanticism, which I like. You know, I love the stories and the legends and Shaolin monk and all of that and so on. The reality is that a lot of that is fun, but it's legend, you know, it's not. uh, And uh, the reality of it is sweaty and (laughs) much uh, dirtier and Uh in their entire martial art systems.
1: That would never work in a million years. Well, I was you know I was on, I mean? on Joe it's Rogan's like, show the other day, yeah. and, I, and he said that he said the Chinese systems are bullshit. He's, and that's what I studied. Right. He's like all oh, this, you know, based on animal movements and all this. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. It was I mean crane, serpent, and tiger, and even that monkey. it's
2: yeah not necessarily and not always because yeah. I mean there have been Chinese guys who have done some amazing, but you know they. It depends how you st- even the same system. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like take something like, I don't know, a winchon in a lot of schools, you see some of these guys and you're like, yeah, good luck applying that. But that doesn't mean that every guy who has ever applied it sucked that bad. Right. Uh, if you look at Tai Chi today, Tai Chi, you're not going to, most people are never going to be able to apply to fight. It's like a movie meditation. It's beautiful, yeah. it's nice, but it's not for fighting. Right. Back in the early 1900s, there are these clippings from Chinese newspapers that say, oh, it's a real pity that people only know Tai Chi as this brutal fighting martial arts and don't know the hell <laughs> time aspect of yeah, it, you know, because right. they train different. It changes, yeah. And so what Tai Chi done by one guy 150 years ago was like is completely, so even that, you know, I wouldn't be as um, radical in the all Chinese stuff is crap. Mm, Cause there is some good stuff. Not a lot today. Today, a lot of it is. And also, uh, it depends, depends what
1: you want. right? Depends a what you want. A lot of people want. aren't even interested in fighting. They're interested in, in, in the the balance and right. the development of you know the physical fitness. Yep. And, yep. Yep. and yep. Yep. Have
2: you ever studied Aikido? Aikido, no. I've always been attracted by Aikido because I like the philosophy. Weshiba's ideas are brilliant. I like the aesthetically beautiful. Yeah. But that's taking to a point, at least the way it's taught today, because from what I hear, Weshiba was indeed badass and very fighting-oriented. But the way it's taught today, so much of it is let's just dance at that point, you know what I mean? It's like, if it's about movement and balance and thing, because they take something and they turn some techniques that could be martial art oriented, except that the guy being the attacker does all the work, throwing himself all over the place with you. (laughs) you Like one of my favorite Aikido (laughs) stories of all was this guy was telling me, there's this technique in Aikido, which is sort of this, where you don't touch the guy and you're supposed to just be using energy to basically flip him. Yeah. And I was talking to these guys like, how does that work? I said, well, I don't know how it works in general, but this is my experience. I went into the school and I didn't know any better. And the teacher did that on me. He lifted his forearm right above me and I didn't fall. <laughs> and so what he did is he dropped his forearms straight on my nose. <laughs> and then and we fell. did it again. Yeah. And I still didn't fall. And so he dropped his forearms straight on my nose. By the third time, he was like Pavlo's dog. He lifted his head <laughs> and I just threw the hell of myself on the and back. And I was like, out of there. like, oh, I see. So, that's, yeah. so you yeah. know, I mean, I like it. I think he's really a it's beautiful martial art. I like how it looks. You learn how to fall, which is a great skill. It's a very um, important skill. It's yeah. a great meditation. In terms the martial component, in most Aikido places, is non-existent.
1: The thing about, for me, the the value of uh, the primary value of Aikido is the um, is the psychological aspect of mm-hmm. it. I, I I mean, I after that experience with you know my teacher killing his father, I shy i, I didn 't go near martial arts for right. for years i and then I was starting graduate school. I was in my first class in grad school, and it was about um, addiction studies and the uh, the professor. Interesting, you know, I, I went into that class. I had done a lot, I mentioned before we went on the air, I'd done a lot of uh, research on altered states of consciousness mm-hmm. and drugs and you know, all this kind of stuff. So I went into this class thinking this teacher's going to talk about how all drugs are bad and right. he and I are going to have a big problem because that's bullshit and I know it's right. bullshit mm-hmm. and I'm not the kind of student who just sits there quietly, you know? And instead, this guy came in the first day and just blew me away with how, mm-hmm. how cool and smart and open minded he was. And at one point, he said, um, he said, look, if you're, you're, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, someone with an addiction problem, they are going to come to your office angry. Mm-hmm. Most of them are coming cause they're forced to come their right. wife, their boss, the police. Somebody said you either go get this therapy or you are divorced, you're fired, whatever. Um, and he said, you can't get caught up in their anger. You can't take it personally. You can't resist it. Yep. What you need to do is find a way to take that energy and use it, redirect it in a positive way that'll help this person. Right. That's the best you can possibly do. If you lose your center, you won't do anything, right? And I, I raised my hand, I said, that sounds kind of like Aikido. And he said, come talk to me after class, we'll talk about that. So I went up after class and he said, look, I, can't, I couldn't say this in front of the students, but if you want to be a psychologist, You'll learn more about the human mind from Aikido than you'll learn from this school or any other school. I agree. And you should really consider it. And, and we got to be friends, and and he said, um he said, Why don't you go take some Aikido classes? Yeah. This was in San Francisco. I said, Look, man, I'm borrowing money to go to grad school. Right. I, I'm working in a nonprofit. I've got no I've got no yeah. money for Aikido classes. And he said, Well, look, here's my my teacher. His teacher's name was Richard Moon, I think. He said, Go. Check out the class. First class is always free. Check out the class. Talk to Richard. See what. So I go. I took the class, and afterwards, uh, Richard's like, "Oh, you're Pete's friend. You know, I think his name was Pete, the professor." Um, and uh, he said, "What do you think?" I said, it oh, it's really interesting. You know, I really enjoy the class, but I just I don't have money for this." And he said, "Listen, classes cost you know whatever it was, ten bucks a class. Um, take as many classes as you want." Someday when you have money, send me a check. If I'm not around, give the money to a charity or a homeless right. person. And I thought, can't argue with that's that's Aikido. Yeah. And later I understood that's Aikido. Yeah. That's right. Find Aikido is all about dif- it's about um, avoiding conflict mm-hmm. in a way where people don't get hurt. It's so it's you're right, it's there's no martial component. It's there's a great story, an American was in Japan studying Aikido, and he's like a big, tough dude, Mm -hmm. right? And he was on the metro, and uh the guy, uh, a drunk yep
2: i heard you story. know this yeah, story yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right
1: yeah. so well just for listeners it's real quickly this drunk guy this drunk aggressive guy gets on the train and he's threatening people and screaming and yelling and the american is thinking i might have to kick this guy's ass right and he's feeling very self-righteous because he's big and strong and trained and he's going to be protecting old people and children and whatever and finally the drunk is really getting in someone's face and the american stands up to go confront him and he hears someone say hey in a way like not hey but like hey look what I found and the Japanese guy looks and it's this old man and the man says you like sake? and the drunk says yeah I like sake what, what about it old man he's like oh I like sake too my wife and I used to drink sake and he starts telling yep. the story and he yep. draws in the attention of this drunk guy who hadn't even seen the American stand up. Right. And within five minutes, the drunk's sitting next to the old man with his head on his shoulder crying because he's sad and something happened. Yep, yeah, yep. And it, that story, you know the story. It's So yeah. that, you know, the man, the, the American later wrote the story and, and he learned an important lesson there, which is that there are ways to diffuse conflict that don't involve kicking anyone's ass. And you that's, know? in fact, philosophically speaking, I
2: like, Aikido books tend to be the most fun to read in terms of martial arts. They are great. There's this type of stuff, which ultimately is more applicable to life. It's brilliant stuff. You know, it's absolutely, I think part of what happened with Aikido is that pre-World War II, it was a martial art like any Mm. other martial art with Weshiba being very badass based on jujitsu, tough joint locks, striking, hardcore. All the violence of World War II, Turned off uh, oh. Aikido's founder, Weshiba, where he started oh. de emphasizing. The combat aspect, because he say, "Yeah, great, you become the greatest warrior. Look at so, this shit uh, they around drop a us. fucking exactly. bomb on yeah. you, yeah. And so he really started turning it more into being a philosophy movement and not uh, that's, really de-emphasizing the martial. You are the badass the historian, man. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even think about that. That's
1: that's a very interesting
2: perspective. And the makes sense, and so it delivers something else, right? right. That's beautiful in its own right, and I. That's why it's weird because I really like and respect a lot of Aikido's philosophy and even practice. For me, I think I would have to be a lot tougher to do Aikido (laughs) because then I could afford to do something (laughs) softer and gentler Uh, without feeling weird. Right. Part of me is I have to do the hardcore, nasty, gouge you in the eyes, knee you in the groin type of stuff, because then I feel that I can afford to talk about stuff in a more soft, indirect way. Mm. Otherwise, I feel that I do it because I'm scared of conflict. And that's (laughs) why I go about it trying to diffuse conflict, because I'm scared. Somebody Mm. else who's tougher than I am, should do Aikido, because they are already tough. There's no point for them in going to overkill into this hardcore, tough martial mm. arts. They would need something
1: softer and gentler. I think it's a matter of who you are. You See, I think um, I took a, short, a shortcut around no. that. I'm not tougher than you are, <laughs> but I am scared of conflict, and I have no problem saying that. You right. know? I don't want, I mean, that's the thing that I learned when Roy killed his father, right. it's like, you know, I hadn't really thought of it. You can kill someone by accident sure. very easily. Yep. One punch. Yep. One punch can kill someone. They Either the punch can kill them or they, they, they fall hit their head, the road, you yeah. know. And then what? You know, why? Because somebody looked at you wrong or, or, or called you a name or, you know, grabbed your girlfriend's ass or whatever. It's not worth killing no. somebody, you know. I find it easier to no. do, though, when you're not scared of conflict.
2: Because if you are scared of conflict and you're offering a way around it, people can smell it. You know, it's like you motherfuckers are trying to get a way out of it because you know that I'm gonna kick your ass if you're not afraid of conflict and you're giving them a way out. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time in Italy, I was in this situation. I forgot even all the details, but basically there was this group of guys who didn't like this other group of guys. I happened to be talking to people from one group, right. and there's <laughs> middle of the showdown where people arrive with chains, <laughs> with wow. everything, and, like versus, and I'm like, oh <laughs> fuck, really? Yeah. Well. Good timing. And I remember talking to one of the guys from quote-unquote the other group, and uh, my attitude was, look, we wanna do this, let's do it, okay? We wanna fight, let's fight and be done with it. But really, it's like I wanted to go catch a movie tonight. I, I want to see this girl. It's like, I mean, if we wanna do it, let's do it quick at least, because there's other shit I wanna do. <laughs> After so I the kick attitude your ass. right. So the attitude <laughs> was like, do we really have to? Yeah. Can we just? Pat each other on the back and yeah. go have a beer or something. Yeah. And because it didn't come from a place of, oh shit, uh, we really shouldn't fight, you know, because because it's like, you're just, then mm. he was like, you know what? Yeah, I don't really feel like bashing my head with a chain because this other dude said fuck off to the other guy. Yeah, yeah. let's go have a beer, you know? And. Yeah. It, it's different. The same exact words carry a different meaning depending on the attitude that you have in saying them. You know, if it's yeah. an attitude that come out of, I'm scared shitless of conflict, they are not gonna believe it as much as if it's an attitude that says, okay, let's do it. But do we really have to, you know? Cause one sounds like you have a choice and peace is a choice, rather than peace is all you can do because you're scared of the alternative, you know? And everybody's scared. I mean, you're a psycho if you're not scared, but they're scared and scared, you know? They're just scared and yeah. they're terrorized beyond your So for me, because I'm by nature very nerdy, very yin, so to speak, in yin young terms, very more, I need the hardcore, tough aspect to balance me out. Mm. I think people who are tougher, more, assertive more aggressive by nature they would have to do tai chi all day and read poetry to balance them out the other <laughs> way you know what i mean so it's, it's, it's lots of tofu yeah totally it's it really who you are you need some of the opposite to yeah, balance them out balance. Yeah. well
1: you know i think you're one of the most important things i learned traveling i i backpacked around the world for 20 year or 15 years i mm-hmm. guess um uh is exactly what you were just pointing to which is that fear attracts danger, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Not just not just from the hard asses who want to beat somebody up, but dogs and sure. thieves. And yep. even on a karmic level, I mm-hmm. think there's, you know, if you're really worried about something happening, it's probably going to happen. Big time. <laughs> yeah. Or something equally as bad just because of the all that worry attracts mm-hmm. negative energy. That's yeah. exactly how it is, and the
2: fearlessness doesn't come from being you're so tough uh, I can beat anybody. Right. It, it, fearlessness to me is the opposite. It's acknowledging that you don't control anything and right. that you are gonna die. Right. And so what's there to be afraid of? Like all the war stuff <laughs> in the world is gonna happen anyway. What am yeah. I scared about? And, the, so. the,
1: and that that is you know getting back to Aikido. That's something I love about Aikido because I think there's an acknowledgement of. Of strength through an acceptance of vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? So, like in Aikido, the, the physical manifestation is if you know. And I, my understanding is that Aikido was developed as a way to defend yourself against somebody who had a sword, mm-hmm. and you don't. Yep. So you aren't going to block the sword, no, right? Absolutely. So they they swing at you in a certain on a certain line. You give them that mm-hmm. line, right? And so in in I've used this in. Not consciously but i've uh, I've noticed in interviews you know like someone will will really be attached to making a certain point about sex at dawn or the way right. I write or you know whatever I give that to them. Right. Yep. Because if I yep. fight them on that, if, well, then there's no point. Yeah, no. It's just ugly. So give that to them and then sort of swing it around and bring something else into it. And then we can end up with mutual respect. And yep. like you and the, and the professor in Wales, right. you know, it's like you didn't go to his office looking to fight him, but you end up him like recommending you yep. to, to Pete yep. and you yep. you yep. you know this whole world opens up yep. to you because you you approach a potentially conflictive situation in a in a way that acknowledges your own vulnerability there's I think there's wisdom in that yeah yeah and you know different people get to that
2: place in different ways for right. some people it will be an Aikido training that makes sense for Twitter. right there whatever resonates for me yeah. is exactly I have to go the opposite route to go just punch something, <laughs> get punched by somebody, go like whole hardcore, yeah. but ultimately it's to be able to do the exact same thing. Yeah. So the point is, whatever I allow you to do that is the right thing for you, whether right. it's a martial art, whether it's cooking or gardening or whatever the hell it is, is if you lead, that's what I mean by life. The point of it is getting to that spot. Yeah. How you yeah. get there is an incident. Is right. who cares. Right. Is, there are uh, many paths up yeah, the mountain. And yeah, and getting lost into the specific of any one path is pointless because you are missing what the destination, which is what this right. whole thing is supposed to deliver.
1: Well, Daniele, it, you're su- such an interesting person that I completely forgot to take a break for commercials. I forgot to mention, like, where, you know, go to the archives of, uh, of tangentially speaking, at feralaudio.com, where you can hear previous episodes, uh, including Pete McCormick, mm-hmm. who we talked about, and uh, Carsey Blanton, who whose song Smoke Alarm you'll hear uh, on the fade-out here in a few minutes. And um, also, uh, I'm told by my podcast editor that if you enjoy the podcast, it's important to leave a rating and a review on iTunes, that that helps the, the the algorithm, whatever the hell an algorithm is, that will uh, somehow benefit us. The math gods will be pleased. The math gods will be pleased, and Pythagoras. And uh, and also, uh, if you want to make a donation, uh, the, apparently there's a button you can click on at feralaudio.com, and you can leave your spare change there. And not appropriate, by the way. You
2: push or rub, however it may be, a button, uh-huh. and... Chris will be happy as a result of it. I see yeah. some strange uh, symbolism in all this.
1: Yeah, click my button. Yeah. You know? My touch my my virtual clitoris on the webpage there. Yeah, I, I actually yesterday somebody sent a two hundred dollar donation. What the hell? Yeah. You have
2: good listeners, man. Uh, well, I won. No. Well, still, that's <laughs> It sweet. might have
1: been my mother. I'm not sure. Uh, that's still sweet.
2: <laughs> but, you know, even, even like sometimes you've got people who send you $1. Yeah. That's also damn sweet. Because yeah. you know, somebody who took the time to
1: go on PayPal, please oh, it's, it's send sweet. it. Yeah. And it's like, it's hey, just to that's let what you know, you know can they're give. there. That's really yeah. sweet. They appreciate it. That's awesome. Twitter, I mean, as much as I, I disparage Twitter, I mean, the name and yeah. the little bird and the tweets, it's just so fucking asinine. But I have to say, it's it's amazing, you know, uh, the podcast and whatever, you know, you do something publicly and there's a way for people to tell you, hey, I mm-hmm. like that. Now, you... I guess you don't hear from people who don't like it unless they, you know, don't so like I it enough to give a <laughs> right. shit. But, but it's 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 a cool feedback. Yep. It's a way to to hear from people, so that's really cool. Um, what else was I going to say? You've got a podcast mm-hmm. which I've listened to. I listened to an episode. I think it was with Duncan Trussell oh, yeah, on my one. flight back yeah, from yeah. Europe. That was that was really good. And I listened to another one too. I don't remember what the other one was. It was a long flight. I listened to at least two or three. Very uh, very amusing, interesting. Fascinating guess uh drunken Daoist. what's it called the drunken Taoist yeah. right it's, uh, it's fun. We do
2: like two a month, one with a guest and one without where I just go off ranting about random subjects. So <laughs> one is a conversation like the one oh, you're right, having and right. then one is just random. Um, yeah, that's cool. I was
1: thinking life, of doing some and, uh, some individual ranting episodes. It's fun. Yeah. It
2: gives you room for, uh, they're, they're very different flavors, but it's fun each one. And, um, and uh, I guess. And you just started our, recently, right? Yeah, I started October 1st. That was the oh. one with Duncan. And then we yeah. do. So one a month with a guest. Uh, guests so far we have had we have had we have Duncan. we have had uh, Bruce Lee's daughter Channel Lee. All oh, right, that's she a, a recent one. Fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Adam Scorgi and Chris O'Dell. They are Adam Scorgi has produced uh, a documentary called "The Union," um, the business of getting behind the business of getting high. That's all about the marijuana industry in Canada. And, Pete uh, was involved in that in some yeah, way. The, right, yeah. And Chris Odell has a company um, that's all about hemp gear, and uh-huh. making everything from martial arts gi that I have there to uh-huh. all sort of stuff based mm-hmm. on hemp. And then we had Michael, Mike V, his character. His, uh, Mike V is like the wildest skateboarder in ever, mm-hmm. mostly famous for like you know people know him for his fights because he has these crazy wild fights uh, on the street but he's actually a really deep sweet guy and so it was a funny conversation to have with him between his public persona and this uh, and the reality of him and then uh, and i think you know our next guest is going to be i believe you have a sense of who that
1: guy uh, i've heard of be. that guy yeah yeah long-winded <laughs> <He> drunken <laughs> irishman he likes aikido yeah, and, yeah. Uh, writes a lot about sex exactly but we'll talk about other things yeah. on, on your podcast you're in charge of that one and where can people find it um so if you look at drunken taoist the is spelled t-a so
2: with the t t, uh, t as in tom a-o-i-s-t um, there's the website. Uh, my own website is danielebolelli.com. So it's uh, they're all linked together. And it's so on iTunes can, as well? It's on iTunes, yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I think that's Absolutely. where I get it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and have you published books? Anything else you want to you wanna pitch while you're on? Yeah, over? I have a um,
2: couple of books that I've already published. One is about philosophy and martial arts. So very apropos with our conversation called On the Warrior's Pet. Oh, one, yeah. Uh, I think you have seen that. Um, One, I did this thing called um, 50 Things You're Not Supposed to Know religion. It's a, There's a series of books called Fifty Things You're Not Supposed to Know. Fifty Shades and they, of
1: God. <laughs> and, they basically,
2: and they ask me to do this thing about religion. And, you know, I mean, uh, true badass historian for, but I went for the, you know, hardcore nitty gritty stories, the wilder, the better, blood, sex, and gore, it's all in there about religion. And then I have one coming out on April 1st called uh, Create Your Own Religion that is sort of a uh, mm-hmm. Take the best from various systems uh, regarding addressing all the basic questions of life. It's sort ah. of how to where do you as an individual stand when it comes to sex, uh, relationship with the earth, uh, altered state of consciousness, uh, relationship with you know all the that, oh, sure. that uh, sounds interesting, all the basic stuff that what religion is all about, rather than buying into some prepackaged answer. Sort of using the Bruce Lee approach, which is research what's out there. Take the ideas that make sense to you, reject the crap and make up your own thing in the process right so that's a do it yourself approach to religion that's uh, that one is going to come out April first I worked on that one forever, it took me like four or five years or something, and mm-hmm. I originally wrote this before fifty things, but they had asked me to do fifty things first, but now it's finally coming out, so I'm quite happy with that
1: that sounds interesting so, uh, that could that could really catch fire that one would be fun I'm yeah. not
2: opposed to living in a Hawaiian villa
1: next time we do a podcast uh, and, uh, <laughs> on your yacht exactly yeah, we'll do it yeah. on the yacht all right all right, cool. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I need to mention. There are other great podcasts at feralaudio.com, including Duncan Trussell's, which is uh, one of our favorites. Yeah. And you've also been on Joe Rogan's uh, yeah. podcast a few times. Yeah. But, that's an
2: experience. But just like you, neither you or I will ever remember those because we're too high to ever remember <laughs> what <that> happened <laughs> to you. So, well, that's Joe. You know, it's like oh, first time man. I met Joe was like, hey, I'm Joe. How are you? Uh, you want a joint? And I'm like, Jesus. It's like, yeah.
1: within. Six seconds, so it's fun.
2: Yeah, with that, that
1: was really interesting. I I kind of felt like I was in the in the lion's den there. I mean, talk about an alpha male. Mm-hmm. That dude is like all alpha. No yep. hardcore.
2: Yeah i was too high and too. the first time i did the podcast with him i was insanely sick with this mystery illness <laughs> i didn't even know if i was gonna be alive the next month so i was like i do not care about anything i'm like ah, oh, there are like half a million people listening like i don't give a fuck i don't even know if i'm alive tomorrow or whatever yeah, i just yeah. have fun
1: right now and yeah it's funny because it's it's a huge audience yeah. but it's so casual, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very laid back, thing, you know, again, just no chill out and, yep. and very, I mean, I, I sort of, you know, I, I, uh, I, I fucked up in several ways. I mean, first I, I told him, uh, before we went on the air, I, I was trying to tell a story about, um, self-deprecating mm-hmm. like i'm so out of touch kind of story and i said uh you know duncan when i did the podcast with duncan the first time he said oh you should talk to my friend joe he's got a podcast you'd, you'd be really great on that and i'm thinking yeah you know in la everyone's got a friend named joe with a podcast you know like <laughs> right. all right whatever yeah. you know i'm busy yeah i had no idea right <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> and then it's like and then later Duncan's like hey did you have you talked to Rogan like Rogan who's oh your friend Joe yeah yeah your friend Joe and then I was in Spain. I still didn't know yeah. who he was, right? I was in Spain talking to my friend Voodoo. Yeah. And I told him I started doing this podcast. And he was like, oh, you should do Joe Rogan's podcast. I'm like, how do you know Joe you Rogan? You know Duncan's friend. <laughs> that yeah, exactly. Rogan's <laughs> <Right>. neighbor, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he's like, Joe Rogan's huge, <laughs> yeah. man. I mean, he's blah, blah, blah. And I, really? I had no- so I'm telling Joe Rogan the story before we go on yeah. air. And... And I think he might have taken it as like me saying, you know, hey, I never heard of you. You know I see, I see, I see. Which isn't at all how I meant it. Right. Yeah, he could right. But I think he he sort of thought I was like playing some power trip. And I you know, and it's like I wasn't at all. And then we and then the joint comes around and I'm thinking, well, if I don't hit the joint, I'm a real asshole. So I hit the joint. And then I'm stoned out of my bloody mind. Yeah. And then I told some story which I I I've told privately before but I've never used the the guy's name he's an actor mm-hmm. and the whole story is about how this guy's wife wouldn't let him read sex at dawn mm-hmm. you know and she got all upset about it so I told this story using the guy's name stupidly and then Joe's like oh yeah they're they're good friends of mine actually and, like, and uh, yeah shit. like oh jesus and then I didn't know it was a three-hour fucking interview, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, the whole thing, from my perspective, the whole thing was just like, I just stepped in sh- <laughs> you know, one <laughs> pile of shit after another. <laughs> and, uh, I, and then I was paranoid, of right, course, because I was <laughs> um, But uh, the feedback on Twitter has been really positive. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I, no, I, I mean, Joe it, is it great, right. and his listeners are absolutely awesome. Oh, fantastic and audience. And yeah, uh,
2: really and Smart. Joe is really like the god of podcasting when it comes to it, both in terms of success as yeah. well as in terms of being able to pick. You know, sometimes he has some really famous people, sometimes not as famous, and somehow he always finds some gems out there. Yeah. So I mean, he has definitely a talent for that.
1: Yesterday's guest was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, mm, yeah. the yeah. astrophysicist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah,
2: fantastic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And
2: uh, so no, I mean, it's yeah, being on Rogan's podcast is quite an experience <laughs> to say the least, but it's, well, it's a great one. If you invites when, me
1: back, I'm not hitting that joint, <laughs> I, I'll tell you. There's no way. I'll, right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll drink tequila before I right. hit that joint. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah.
2: He has some powerful stuff,
1: man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if we were on air when we no, were talking about, you sure. know, like both of us are, are more old school. I, yeah. I grow in Spain where it's completely right. legal. Uh, every year I, I grow out on the terrace. I grow a particular thing called uh, Cali Mist, K-L-A-I. Right. K-A-L-I, that's uh, 80% sativa. It's very up, kind of nice. But it's mellow, and I grow in dirt, you know, and it's like, eh, it's not going to, you're not going to be debilitated by this stuff, you
2: know? You (laughs) know, it's weird, though. I have some strange thing about weed, because it doesn't do much to me. Even, Mm. like, the extreme hardcore stuff, like, Mm. I'll hate it, and I'll be, you know, mildly out of it, but not, Nothing. It doesn't have the same effect on me as it does on most people. Like mm. I'll smoke the same joint with somebody, and they'll be like tripping out of their minds, and I'm just there, mildly relaxed, and I'm like, "There's some weird, something weird yeah. about my body chemistry." Right. And it doesn't right. hit me that hard. Yeah, people but, respond to things very mm-hmm. differently, oh, and, yeah.
1: and even within marijuana, you know, people think grass is grass, and mm-hmm. they don't understand mm-hmm. the indica sativa yep. thing is very different. And also the way, if if you are smoking versus eating, it's also a very different oh, experience. Yeah, eating kills me. I can do that. Well, it's it's eating is very dosage dependent. Yeah. you have to be very careful about dosage. Yeah, uh, yeah, because it if you have too much, uh, you, there's no danger. There's no organ no. toxicity or anything, but you will suffer. It's like it's like getting the spins when yeah. you're too drunk. It sucks. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough about that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else uh, we should be plugging? No, where do you teach? Santa Monica? Santa Monica, Santa Monica College, uh-huh. Cal State Long Beach.
2: Oh, okay. Those are the two main places. And
1: as, a, as an Italian, do you get a waiver on the sleeping with the students rule? <laughs> like, are you like, yeah. like, okay, danielli can sleep with the uh, students, oh, but I'm nobody sorry, else. What, what were we talking about? I don't <laughs> remember what. Oh, you want to you want to edit that out? Is we're not, a, <laughs> totally, totally plain. plain? I spoke in uh, I spoke at the new school. Uh, in, in new york a few months ago uh, i was invited by a professor there named Emanuel ammanuel um i don't remember his last name probably just as well but uh really cool guy mm-hmm. italian guy uh i think he teaches uh sociology or anthropology mm-hmm. anyway i gave i gave my my presentation there and he said well afterwards we'll we'll have dinner and some drinks with some of my mm-hmm. like top students like, okay great Um, So we went out for dinner after the talk, and it was me, him, and like eight super hot women in their mid-20s, right, grad students. I'm like, hey, that's pretty (laughs) nice. These are your favorite students. I'm not surprised. Yeah, 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 very nice (laughs) visiting Italian professor. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, That does
2: not exactly surprise me, but yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Anyway, I'll tell you the rest of the story when we turn off the recorder. How's that? All right. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much. Thanks, Danielle. other.
0: said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. Body is an animal, doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from Wondering what we ought are saying In my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.